Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is part two of our look at the song Hey Jude. And in our first part, it was the road kind of to Hey Jude. The creation myth about the song is that it is written by Paul McCartney to Julian Lennon in the midst of John and Cynthia Lennon separating and and starting their divorce. And in the first part, we advise you to go back and listen to it, but we'd gotten to the point where John has hitched his wagon to Yoko, (laughs) Team Yoko. And the question that we were uh, looking at towards the end is, well, at what date uh, and at which point in, in the time that that happens does it become official common public knowledge? And the story so far is there's about a month between coming back from Rishikesh and John making two virgins and, and getting together with Yoko. And then there's about another month, which uh, this is where we left it, which is a little bit, things are a little bit up in the air. That's kind of fair to say. Yes, I'd like to say, first of all, I have no idea what the euphemism hitching one's wagon to the Yoko, oh no, uh, whatever. Uh, anyway, um, yes, that's where we there's, there, 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 there's an awful lot of euphemisms being used in these episodes to, you know, to, to you know, it, in replace of things like falling in love and other, and other terms. Other things we, we can't bring ourselves to say. Um, so so where, where we left it, uh, Cynthia has flown off to Italy in a reckless manner. I think, um, mm. leaving John on his own, but not for long. So on the 18th of June, we mentioned that uh, John and Yoko really do their first... No, we don't. No, we didn't. 15th of June. On the 15th of June, they pl- <laughs> they, they plant their acorns uh, at Coventry Cathedral. And I suppose that's a sort of artsy thing. Uh, that's a continuation of Yoko's art. So perhaps it didn't penetrate yeah it kind of it kind of flies under the radar and yeah. it could kind of be seen as oh john is supporting this artist and okay there's no it's not totally explicit yet no although there's a little bit of controversy around this about planting the acorns in consecrated ground and 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 this sort of thing and the you know the church authorities get very agitated about this because uh, there is a degree of uncertainty around you know what is john's relationship with Yoko and you know, these a couple out of wedlock and that sort of thing. Mm. But the but the big incident uh, that really brings this front and center is on the eighteenth of June, when 
John and Yoko together attend the premiere of John's play in his own right at the Old Vic in London. And they are very much attending that as a couple. It is obvious to the attended uh, people gathered at the event, which includes George and Patty Harrison and Ringo Starr and Maureen. Uh, Paul is away at a Jane Asher play, um, although not for much longer. Um, uh, So it is obvious that they are there as a couple. You know, it's... It seems odd that in his own right becomes a play. What is the point of that? <laughs> well, this is it's a very short play, first of all. Shall oh, good. So it, it's based on the book uh, and the follow up, A Spaniard in the Works. It features the central character, who's just called me. And uh, it, it's really a series of skits taken from the poems and writings. And this has really been developed by. Um, I think the initial idea might have been come from Victor Spinetti. Certainly he is working with John on this mm. at the time. He is beside John giving interviews and they're working on tape loops and things like that. Um, but it's one of three plays that are put on across a single night. Um, Laurence Olivier was behind this. So, you know, it comes okay. with a very, very good, very legitimate. Um, he's an actor, Jason. Oh, right. So <laughs> he... Um, it comes with good good theatre credentials. Well, the the old Vic is a very nice. Have you ever been inside the old Vic? Stephen? I have, I have. But it's a very nice theatre. It's a very nice theatre, um, and it's it's a proper. It's it's a little bit away from London's West End. It's on the south side of the river, but it's a, it is one of London's big main theatres. Yes, yes. and uh, there there's been some talk around this time of this being turned into a film. Which, yes, uh, no, I don't think this ever gets elevated to, you know, Beatles 3, the third Beatles movie. But certainly in uh, New York, uh, this comes up and uh, it's talked about. And John said, you know, oh, it's a tough book to read at times. Depends how you feel. Can't really explain it. I just have to make a film out of the two books. How I'll do it, I don't know, but I'll do it. I can't really say how I'm going to do it. Haven't got it on paper yet. Um, So, yes, it's, uh, you know, to to read a description here, the play weaves the verse and prose into a picture of a boy growing up. On one side, it shows his television fixated family, the human vegetables. On the other side, the dreams and fantasies he uses to escape from them. It's like looking at the cliches of post-war Britain in a hall of mirrors provided by Lenin's warped language. This was the achievement of director Victor Spinetti. I can't imagine that was necessarily the plan when he wrote the book, that that's what it was going to reflect. No, no. I, I, I don't think so, but you can see that Spinetti has pulled together various threads, the sort of anti-establishment aspect of the book, the the lack of respect for authority, the wordplay and the humour. And Lennon has given an interview um, earlier in the month on the 6th of June with Victor uh, Spinetti, and it's a goes out on the BBC and the interviewer is Peter Lewis. And this is, he talks about the phrase that you used previously, Brummer striving. This Mm. idea of a tedious life where you're just doing a job that you don't want to do, that you just, you're just the the inanity of of, of modern life. And this is, I suppose, something that Lennon keeps coming back to. But there is an exchange at the end. And Lennon says, the universal sorrow just hits you about once a week now, bang. And then you say, oh, oh, well. And then you're back to, well, get on with it. You know, just get on with it. And they sort of laugh. And he says, well, there are laughs to compensate because if there weren't, it would be very melancholy. And you think, is this a, 
an insight into his state of mind at the beginning of June 1968. It's a very striking phrase when he says, you know, the universal sorrow hits you just once a week. I mean, it is the language of mental health and the language of depression, essentially, is is what it sounds like. And, uh, you know, maybe at that point we didn't have as much insight or as much time or capacity for, for dealing with something like that. But these interviews that he does in relation to In His Own Right are they're up there on YouTube. They're quite well known. There's another clip that's been going around a lot recently, given the events of recent months where he's talking about world governments and world yeah. peace. And, you know, if, if the governments of the UK and America and Russia and China could tell us what they want, but I think they're mad, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's again, another one of these steps towards what we might call 1969 John from John and Yoko, you know, where he's finding this voice and sticking a flag in certain issues about himself and the world. I think that's it. It's about himself and the wider world. And these two things seem to be coming together. And this is a man whose marriage is breaking up. He's made a decision at this point. You know, he's leaving his wife. He's leaving his child. This is echoes of his own upbringing. He was five years old uh, when, when his parents effectively you know, he, he had to make that choice. Um, so, yeah, these, these things are coming together. And it is the language of depression. It is quite striking. Yes. And it's, as you said, the, the, the play itself is one of three one-act plays. And the other ones, uh, pub quiz question, were called A Covent Garden Tragedy and An Unwarranted Intrusion, which had nothing to do with John's play. No. And I can't imagine that the tickets were being bought to see a Covent Garden tragedy. One no. for a Covent Garden tragedy, please. No. I don't think so. Um, but the play opens on the 18th of June, 1968, which is one month from what the uh, the date we mentioned in the previous episode of I'm on LSD and I'm Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm going off to make two virgins. See you later. So, you know, w- one thing that kind of comes back again and again, and we're, we're obviously across a number of episodes, we're looking at the Brian era to the Alan Klein era, that... F- it is impossible to predict what is going to be the state of affairs, say, in five weeks' time. Every five weeks, if you kind of cut through it, it's like, where are we at now? Okay. And five weeks later, it's different. And about five weeks later, it's different. That is the way of operation from mid-67 yeah. through to the end, essentially. Uh, and this is another version of that, that we're, we're just one month on from, you know, these events and... Uh, you know, we could argue that when he does come out on the 18th of June um, with Yoko, it doesn't really trigger an awful lot of goodwill from the press. No, uh, there is a suggestion that this is really where the the ill will uh, towards Yoko begins at this at this point. I mean, they're they're basically yelling at him as he walks past, saying, "You know, where's your where's your wife, Mister Lennon?" And he's yeah. very curtly saying, "You know, I don't know." Um, <laughs> So this is this is whether he likes it or not. He is announcing to the press, to the world, and to Cynthia, who is in Italy. I'm no longer married. Effectively, my marriage is over, and this is now who I'm with. And I suppose anybody yeah. looking at it, whether that's the press or Paul or anybody else in his orbit, they don't know yeah. if this is a permanent setup or is this. You know, he's never gone public with one of his affairs before. So to that extent, it's different. But he has form. They all have form, with possible, yeah, yeah. possible exception of Ringo at this point. Um, yeah, absolutely, they have form. And 
whether it was intentional uh, or not, but the reality of what happens next is this goes not just to British newspapers, but to newspapers all around the world, including Italy. Yes, where Cynthia is on holiday with, uh, you know, her family and with Julian. And it's, a, you know, you know the it's a bit of a coward's way out to, it's, you know, put your picture in the paper or know that your picture's going to end up in the paper. It's pretty brutal, I have to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and so this is seen in Italy. This doesn't pass Cynthia by, does it? No. So she sees these headlines. Uh, she basically, I think, is unwell at the time or because of this or coincidentally, but she takes to her bed. And uh, the next thing that happens is the person you would want to turn up um, <laughs> when you're on holiday with your with your mother and child. Uh, and your Let's all guess who it is. It's Magic Alex. Magic Alex, the anti-Mal Evans. <laughs> The anti yeah yeah that's that, that that's that's right that's pretty much his role he's the exact opposite you know Mal will fix everything and Magic Alex will not fix anything no so he basically arrives to tell Cynthia John is going to divorce you he's going to take Julian you're not going to have any money it's over and I mean I wouldn't like to have to go and deliver that message to anybody but uh, Alex is up for it. Yeah, like why does he why does he do that himself? Is this another version of the story where Magic Alex is courting Cynthia or what? is trying to be the shoulder to cry on if you're being cynical about these things? If you're being completely cynical about this. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. This allows John at a later date to point the finger at Cynthia Cynthia and accuse Cynthia of adultery. Yeah. And he, he, he's effectively sort of pointing the finger at Alex and saying, well, you know, of course, you and you and Alex had an affair. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to divorce you on the grounds of adultery. And Cynthia, in 2005, uh, makes a statement. She said, it was almost collusion between Magic Alex and John and Yoko. They thought that I was going to be so frightened by the whole thing, but I knew it hadn't happened. I wasn't guilty. This is the, the adultery allegation. I was in Italy with my mother. There was no way... That could have happened. I, I think there was a private detective around. The mere fact that Magic Alex arrived in Italy in the middle of the night without any prior knowledge of where I was staying made me extremely suspicious. Mm. One of the things here is that the people that run the hotel are called Bassanini. And okay. there is a Roberto Bassanini, who is the son of the people that run the hotel. And there is this suggestion that he and Cynthia might be having an affair. Um, right. So, completely coincidentally, she then goes on to marry Robert Bassanini. Ah, oh. well now. <laughs> but, <laughs> there um, you go. I hadn't put two and two together. I see. But, <laughs> um, but, so, but she, who knows which, happened, which thing happened first? We don't know, really. We, we, we don't know. But this is the, 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 the rest of this quote is uh, the whole thing was just so surreal and bizarre. And then, of course, the following day in the newspapers, there's the photo of John and Yoko. And at that point, everything fitted together in my mind. I was being coerced into making it easy for John and Yoko to accuse me of doing something that would make them look not so bad. When your back is to the wall, the best form of defense is attack. He had come out to the world that he had left his wife and family, and he was now with, quote, Japanese bottoms artist Yoko Ono, unquote. <laughs> Love is blind sometimes. 
I knew something terrible was going on, but I couldn't put my finger on it. But it was only when all these other things came about that I became aware that I was being set up. And yes, I think there there is an element of that of John setting I, her up. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think. Uh, you know, there's another part of that quote where she says, you know, you do these things and don't realise the consequences, speaking of John getting together with Yoko. And I honestly think, you know, John probably did feel that he would not get any backlash. He had been an unimpeachable Beatle for five to six yep. years at this point, And he had people to fix things and to do things. And he treats this issue, this job, this moment as if it's you know, unstring a kaput mal, can you go fix it, you know? Um, you know, I'm going to send Magic Alex off and I will come out of this, you know, bigger and shinier than, than ever. Everybody loves the Beatles. I, I think there is definitely an element of that. And that feeling is not just confined to John. Um, I mean, I think all four of the Beatles have this attitude at this time that they can basically do anything, go anywhere. You know, they don't carry money. We, you know, with George having his twenty-pound note in the sole of his shoe in Bangor. Um, Paul, we'll see, is conducting affairs all over the place in nineteen sixty-eight, juggling mm. different, 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 different women uh, in the recording studio. We'll come on a later episode, you know, George is using recordings by somebody else, passing them off as his own. John and Yoko, when they give their concert, they're behaving in a very high-handed manner. So I, I think you're right. I think they just have a lot of fixers and yes. they think they can get away with anything. So why would John put himself in the awkward position of having to tell his wife that he's divorcing her? He can just get one of his gophers to do it. Um, and Alistair Taylor kind of also confirms what Cynthia says, you know, that John has these suspicions about Cynthia and, you know, is kind of frantic. But it's, it's, it is a very strange situation that he is objectively being the person who is being unfaithful. But, you know, I think transference is the phrase that uh, that people use where you just transfer your own guilt or suspicions onto somebody else. Yeah, what Alistair Taylor says is uh, John was consumed with jealousy. He might not have loved Cynthia as passionately or as exclusively as he once had, but he sure as hell was not prepared to put up with her loving someone else. He had Alex spying on her, and I think it was this obsessive jealousy that sparked him into bringing Yoko in and kicking Cynthia out. John was a bit of a lost soul until he met Yoko. If you looked at her and then at sexy Cynthia... You couldn't see why any man would exchange a beautiful, warm-hearted blonde who was the mother of his son for an oddball Japanese woman with more hang-ups than a psychiatric clinic. And I think Alistair is perhaps... <laughs> saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> He's saying the quiet part out loud there. Uh, you know, just Jeez. when you think, yeah, I can see what you're saying, then you suddenly think, ah, right, okay, thanks, Alistair. Well, I think he is saying something that um, was the subtext of all the press reports about Yoko, not only when this happened in the summer of 68, yeah. but forever. For, 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 forever, like, yeah. I, like well, when I, you know, was becoming a Beatles teen obsessed person in the, uh, in the 80s, late 80s, late 80s, Stephen, um, you know, there's still very much this narrative that Yoko and Linda were not good enough. And yeah. they had somehow, you know, tread on sacred ground that they shouldn't have. They're foreign, Jason. <laughs> They're both foreign. 
<laughs> well, it's 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 weird, and I'm you know it is one of the big changes I think that I've seen in the last um, thirty years of of Beatle fandom is that this has tilted away a little bit. I mean, there's still Yoko Ono still remains a very easy punchline for some people, but uh, yeah. I think you know there's even in 2022 yet another fantastic Yoko tribute album that's been put out recently and uh, I think we're understanding things a lot better and if this had happened at the time it'd be curious to see what uh, I'm sure Twitter would have been (laughs) so boring (laughs) this would have been a nightmare of people's opinions about about what's going on um but that is where we stand uh when we get to the 18th of June that that is Definitely a day when there's a before and after uh, related to that date, I think is a way of putting it. But what has all this got to do with Hey Jude, Stephen? Like, isn't that what we're here to talk about? We are. We're, we're, we're one and a half episodes <laughs> and we haven't even begun to speak about We haven't even gotten yet. to the first of the nananas on Hey Jude. And uh, um, Well, I think uh, the thing we have to, we have to really, to put this in context, um, because the other thing that's unraveling at this point is... Uh, John's relationship with Paul is, is yes. you know, so we, we kind of keep that in mind at the same time. And perhaps Well, there's we another relationship to... unraveling as well, which is uh, uh, Paul and Jane is unraveling. So it'll be another five or six weeks later in July when Jane goes on television and says that they're not engaged anymore. So yeah. that's happening in the background, even though Paul is at her play in June, by the end of July, yeah. they are not together. So that's yeah. also unraveling. That's your five-week theory. Every five weeks, it's just crazy. Upside down. Upside down, you know? Um, so uh, the 18th of June is um, the day when John attends his play and he appears with Yoko. And June 1968 overall is a very busy month. You know, they have started recording the songs for the White Album. And... Um, after one of the big questions that we've kind of talked about before is which was the day when Paul actually drives to see Cynthia and starts to get inspired to write this song? Because that is the the backbone of the story of Hey Jude. That's the date. Everybody wants to know what that date is. Well, we can, <laughs> well, we, can whittle we, can, it, we can whittle it down because we know we know that Paul flies back to New York on the 20th of June. And yes. then he flies on to a capital executive conference in LA where he's yep. giving a little little speech. Um, I think that's the 22nd and 23rd. And this is where he and Linda, what was the phrase you used? This is where... Hitched his wagon to... He hitches to Linda's wagon or something. <laughs> he hitches to Linda's wagon um, because they always, uh, you know, could get quite got quite romantic and giggly apparently about LA, which is where they consummated their relationship. But... Um, so we know he's in LA, 22nd, 23rd, and then flies back from New York, getting back into London on the 26th. So he's not, he's not in the country um, between the 18th, 20th and the 26th. Yes. Um, so that puts us into the last week in June. And when he comes back uh, to London, there's music being recorded and songs being done. And uh, it's possible, you know, that... They're doing white album material. Um, so my 
date that I'm going to put down is potentially June the 29th, Saturday, June the 29th, a weekend. There is no official Beatles business at play. Uh, I'm going to say, Stephen, I think that is potentially the date when uh, Paul decides to drive out to see Cynthia. Do you think the Beatles do weekends? Well, you know, you one, know of the fu- it, one of the funny things about Get Back, and I know part of it was to do with union rules and they were filming and all the rest, but they took their weekends off right up until the last weekend, which they worked through. Um, you know, so they weren't always, it was common enough that they would keep their yeah. Saturdays free, you know? So, yeah, so on the, on the 26th, they're recording, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Yeah. And on the tw- 28th, they're recording Good Night, although that is just Ringo. But we know that John is there rehearsing. Yep. Uh, George might be shaking a shaker or something in the background. And it seems that Paul is there as well. Paul mentions in many years from now, he mentions watching or he said we were watching John rehearsing and taking Ringo through the song. We know that those sort of acoustic run through with uh, John on acoustic guitar. So, yeah, it seems to be that Paul is there watching John. And what is John? He's playing a lullaby for his son. Yes. So if, if we if we continue the thread of logic here, it's Friday the 28th of June. They are all in Abbey Road working on Good Night, a song by John for Julian. That might have planted a subconscious seed that you can write songs for Julian, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, it's interesting to think... Did Paul just spontaneously get up on the Saturday morning and think, I'm going to go and see Cynthia? Or did he have this in mind? For all that Paul and John are so tight, they've been to, to the, the States in, in the middle of May, literally two or three days before John and Yoko get together for the first time. This, this Yoko's arrival and elevation to the status of sort of official partner does seem to have blindsided Paul slightly. Yes. Um, now, Yoko so I, has been sitting in on sessions for about six yeah. weeks at this point. She's been around. And um, what might have changed is that because of the events of the, uh, you know, going to the Old Vic on the 18th of June, is that Paul might suddenly realise this isn't a phase and this is a real thing. And, you know, if he goes off to the States right after the Old Vic, you know, uh, tabloid exposure, so to speak, and he comes back, he's coming back a week later, more or less, from the old Vic. And this is the news that it's John and Yoko. She has replaced his wife. Um, you'd wonder, does he pick up the phone to Cynthia and say, I'll, I'll pop over the weekend at some point? Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Hmm. That seems, that, that fits my logic. No further questions. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So, Paul, Paul uh, uh, again, we, if we think about what Paul's relationship with Cynthia was and had been uh, at this point. She's been part of the Beatles social circle since before they were famous. You know, in in our bonus episode, we talked about the fact that Cynthia and Paul come into John's orbit more or less within, what, a week of each other? Ten days, certainly. Within a couple of weeks. John and and Paul meet in July 57 and then John and Cynthia meet September, October 57 and Paul starts with the Quarrymen in October 57. So within the space of a few weeks, John goes from not knowing either of them to knowing both of them. So Cynthia isn't anybody who just, you know, hitched their wagon <laughs> at some point yeah. in the middle uh, of Beatlemania. She is somebody who they go back with 11 years almost. 
yeah, she predates fame. So she, yes. she kind of grew up with with them into that world of, of fame um, that, that they inhabit. So she she knows what it's like. She, she was there for every step. And Paul does say, I'd known them for so long. We had hung out since John's art school days when I had a girlfriend called Dot and John had Cynthia. And we used to force them a lot. I think that's just going to parties. Uh, yes, I'm sure. going to par- going to parties together. Since then, <laughs> I'd seen them get married and seen them have Julian. We'd been very good friends for millions of years, and I thought it was a bit much for them suddenly to be persona non grata and out of my life. So I decided to pay them a visit. Mm. And, you know, that name, Dot, as one of Paul's early girlfriends, you know, whenever you read about these people in, in their orbit in the early days, someone like Dot seems very, very far away. Yes. Yet Cynthia is not as, Cynthia is as far away, but she doesn't feel as far away because she has been in the story. So that's how far back Cynthia goes, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So he, he this is, this is in uh, many years from now, and he says, I thought... As a friend of the family, I would motor out to Weybridge and tell them everything was all right to try and cheer them up, basically, and see how they were. Now, this is this is Paul speaking a long time after the fact, but he's he's keen to make it clear as a friend of the family. And I yes. think that's interesting because George and Ringo, far as I know, don't have much contact with Cynthia after John has set out his stall you know he's made yeah. this declaration Cynthia's gone and we talked about how brutal that is and how, how absolute but Paul doesn't follow the party line mm-hmm. and he is saying as, as, a, as a friend of the family so he's, he's making the point yeah I'm John's friend but I'm a friend of the family and what he also says kind of in that interview is that he was usually going out there to, to Weybridge to collaborate with John and yeah. so there is a history there where he would jump in the car and go out to Weybridge and automatically he would start thinking about, well, I'm going to meet up with John. I I better get into songwriting mode or bring a few ideas or engage that part of my brain. So there might be almost an automatic nature to the fact that he's in a car driving to Weybridge and his muscle memory is saying, here's a new song. And and that pit of his brain is being pumped at that point in time. Yes, I think I think that that's that's it. I mean, he does say I just started singing. Hey, Jules, don't make it bad. Take a sad song, make it better. It was optimistic, a hopeful message for Julian. Come on, man, your parents got divorced. I know you're not happy, but you'll be okay. I eventually changed Jules to Jude. One of the characters in Oklahoma is called Jude, and I like the name. Oklahoma was never like this, Jason. <laughs> oh, press to play spin-off episode. I can feel it happening. Um, I, it, it is. He first of all, he's absolutely right. Jude is much better than Jules. Uh, scans much better and sounds much better. And I do like the fact that for such a personal song, he's willing to sacrifice the name Jules. <laughs> it's like yeah. family friends in a crisis. I'm still going with the name that scans better um, because he is right. Um, and Cynthia has a very shall we say, unique recollection of Paul's visit? I, I'm fascinated by this, um, <laughs> by this quote. So we, we're going to have, we're going to need a side episode. I want to talk about this for 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> so th- this, this, is in, uh, this is taken from uh, The Beatles Off the Record by Keith Badman. And she says, 
During the divorce proceedings, I was truly surprised when, one afternoon, Paul arrived on his own. I was touched by his obvious concern for our welfare and even more moved when he presented me with a single red rose, accompanied by a jokey remark about our future. How about it, Sin? How about you and me getting married? We both laughed at the thought of the world's reaction to an announcement like that being let loose. On his journey down to visit Julian and I, Paul composed the beautiful song, Hey Jude. He said it was for Julian. I will never forget Paul's gesture of care and concern in coming to see us. It made me feel important and loved, as opposed to feeling discarded and obsolete. Okay, shall we pick that apart a little bit? (laughs) Yes. First of all, Paul is picking a side here. And I think this yes. is the way jo- John would see it. You know, it, it, it's in, in any breakup, in any divorce, there's always, you know, who gets who gets what friend? Who stays yep. friendly with, with whom? John made this, makes this declaration. George, Ringo, they have n- no further contact with Cynthia of any, of any great degree. Paul, on the other hand, as soon as he comes back from America, his first free day, he goes off to see Cynthia, and I think that's interesting that he is prepared to risk John's wrath or annoyance or anger at whatever level we put it, that he is prepared to risk that to 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 sort of go and visit the ex-wife. You think, well, why is that? Is that, a, is that an indication that he doesn't approve? He doesn't, Yoko by this stage is in the room, literally yes. in the room. yes making music with them this is a new thing is it part of that is it a way of paul signaling disapproval to john that's the first well i i i think that uh i think i really think it's kind of more of a part of fact-finding mission i think he does care and he does see what's going you know he does he, he would be worried about cynthia and julian i'm not saying he doesn't care but I think it is fact-finding where he's trying to say, well, what is the truth about this? Because, yeah. you know, he knows John has been unfaithful over the years and uh, he's probably trying to figure out, well, what does this all mean? Is this the real deal? Are they really, is it really over? Kind of just to see the whites of their eyes, really, Cynthia and, and Julian, just to try and see what the, the setup is. So I, I don't think he's taking sides because it's not like he goes out and visits her every week for the next two or three years. It it, it, no. it seems to be painted, this story, as a one-off event. And I think that's where it is. Like, you could imagine he comes back from the States, all hell has broken loose in this thing that has kind of been bubbling along under wraps for, you know, a couple of weeks. And he's like, yes, I will go out and say hello and I care for them and all the rest. But he also just wants to see what's going on and what's her side of the story. And I suppose he will have heard John's side, which is that Cynthia was having an affair with Roberto Bassanini. Yeah. So the, there are there are the two sides. There is the, uh, there are those two uh, those two different uh, narratives. The other thing that I don't yes. think Paul has ever mentioned is that he takes her a big bunch of flowers. Sorry, no, he he takes her not a big bunch of flowers. He takes mm-hmm. a single re- single red rose. That's quite mm. interesting. Do you not know mm-hmm. think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't look. I don't think that uh, the world's most eligible bachelor is going to want to get together with a, a divorcee who has a child. Oh no! Wait a sec. 
Hmm. Uh, let me rephrase that. Let me think again. Yeah. I, 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 well, when he presents the rose and says, how about it, Sin? How about you and me getting married? I do think he is joking. It's a joke. Don't you think? So does he... he I think, I think, he, I think it's a he, bit he, of... He, I think it's a bit... Don't you think it's a bit of a silly lark that he's kind of just... Uh, what would you say? He's just being goofy. Paul. I don't I don't really yeah, I don't really think he's declaring his love for Cynthia. So he he stops at a service station on the way and picks up a single red rose. Be, single red rose is a difficult enough thing to find, I would have thought. Well, he probably had Alistair Taylor run out and get it for him. Or he probably just but, grabbed um, one from a display in his hall on the way out. <laughs> probably. Maybe 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 that was it. I'm just thinking you know, if any 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 man out there listening has ever given a single red rose uh, to a lady. Um, <laughs> Let us know. What's it like? <laughs> nudge, nudge. What's it like? Not wink, wink. Say no more. Um, uh, yeah, it just it seems it seems odd, but maybe maybe it is just a maybe it is just a. a I mean, a it's, joke. It, it's certainly un- unusual, and I know this is in in Rob Sheffield's book, Dreaming the Beatles. It's certainly unusual to think of any other '60s rock star taking one of his days off to check in on his bandmates, ex-wife, and kid to make sure they're all right. It's a very unusual thing. But you know, again, you, we have to strip away some of the cynicism, and we do know that Paul is a nice bloke for doing this type of thing. That people do feel in his orbit that he. You know, if if you if if you're a pal of his, that he will look out for you, and he does kind of do that extra mile, and he sends the letters and the postcards and the fruit we baskets do. and all the rest. He does that. He does that. We do know that, and we do know that he and Julian, you know, that he got on very well with Julian. And John remarked, uh, uh, you know, uh, had previously remarked on how well Paul interacted with Julian in a way that he felt he he sort of never never could particularly. And you know, Paul Paul grew up with a brother. He kind of you know, had a much more sort of stable family environment. But, uh, and yeah, I think it probably was just a joke and it would have been very fast um, for someone even like Paul to make a move on Cynthia, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. A sort of, uh, sort of red, red Rose speed dating. Ah, Red Rose speed date. I get that. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned there um, Mike McGeerin passing as if June 68 wasn't busy enough. Earlier in the month, Paul had been the best man at Mike McGeer's wedding. So, you know, relationships and marriages and things are, are all in the air from all directions. It was in the air. You've seen that photograph of Paul as best I've seen man. that photo. <laughs> he, is, he, he looks like a man who has had... Um, more than one over the eight, quite a lot to drink, uh, I would he's, have he's, to say being quite friendly to the bride he is he plants plants a big smacker on the on the on the bride <laughs> at one point um so what does it all mean it, it's almost like you need a break uh, to to think about what it all means Stephen. so we're going to take a break right now end of part one intermission this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So where we left it there was that Paul McCartney had presented a single red rose to John Lennon's estranged wife. And that's all totally normal behavior for a rock star in June 1968. Correct, Stephen? Nothing to see here. (laughs) Nothing to see here. Please move along. And in the back end of that, um, he has written a song that is in his head called Hey Jude. And we are postulating, if that's the word, that uh, this is the 29th of June. Um, We don't really know how this meeting with Cynthia ends, except that it it just does end. But... um, the reason why we think it's the 29th of June, Saturday the 29th of June, is that we know for a fact that Paul plays the song for people on the 30th of June. So what does he do on yes. the 30th of June? Well, on the 30th of June, he is uh, recording, doing a, a field recording uh, with the Black Dyke Mills Band. Uh, they record Thingamabob, which is a theme tune to a much-loved sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> I it's don't a remember kids the show of some kind or something. Anyway, anyway, so he he's he's up up north recording uh, the brass band, uh, complete with his usual entourage. And uh, then as he's driving back, I was going to say down the motorway, but there probably wasn't a motorway at the time. No, it was the M1. Apparently, he was on. He was he was he was on the M1, which is the first motorway in the UK, which was opened at that time, and it's a road that runs from London to uh, Liverpool, oddly enough. And I've travelled it many times. And yes, it's and it's it's the first motorway, so it was called the M1, so it was open there. The Irish right. built it, Stephen. You know, it's very important of to course. remember that. Of course, very good. <laughs> very, very good, very good. So they, they, they stop um, at a village called Harold. This is a very yes. English... That's almost well, like a gun show. Uh, but isn't that the point? He's he, he kind of pulls off the motorway and goes down the back roads to, and it's like, find somewhere with a silly name or a fun name or just find somewhere that sounds interesting. You know, he's, uh, I think it's um, Tony Bramwell who says, uh, you know, Paul suggested we pull out the AA book and find a village with the nicest name. We pop off the motorway and after a short time, Harold in Bedfordshire was spotted and a detour was made. And that kind of larking is totally of the man who would be, you know, that's the kind of stuff he tries to summon up when Wings are doing a university yep. tour and all that kind of stuff. He loves that kind of honour thy error as a hidden intention, spontaneous, spontaneation type stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's very Paul. It's very mm. Paul. It's very and, Paul. Uh, so basically, basically everywhere is shut, as it should be on a Sunday. <laughs> Playgrounds, everything. <laughs> everything. So they uh, they drove through the village. Uh, they meet someone cutting his hedge. It's so idyllic, you know. And uh, uh, Ray Davies would have loved that. Loved it. It's the village green. Absolutely. And, uh, 
Recognising Paul, this chap invites him into his home to have some tea and said the pub would be open shortly. <laughs> it is crazy. It is crazy that Paul McCartney just rocks up in the village and you say, oh, come come to my house for tea. Yep, yep. And, and, yep. and Paul should have been wary about accepting an invitation from a stranger because Tony Bramwell says he was a dentist. We know what happens uh, to dentists. What is it with dentists and the Beatles? They just weave in and out yeah. of the... That's a separate episode, the Beatles and, and teeth. Uh, Your wife would be thrilled if uh, <laughs> you just came in one Sunday and said, oh, uh, have we got anything in the fridge? Uh, Paul McCartney and his <laughs> are here. Well, that has actually happened to me. It has not actually happened to me. I, I, I did once give a lift to a member of Suede. That's, that was the most exciting thing that's possibly ever happened. Um, but yeah, he goes down to the pub and the pub fills up. So he goes back to the dentist's house a second time, has a bit more wine and then goes back to a lock-in in the pub. And that's when the music really kicks in. Isn't that right? Yeah. So it said, uh, we were then told that the pub had been cleared of all but the real locals and we were invited back for a quiet drink after ours. Paul was pretty swiftly sat at a piano and played a selection of standards and Beatles classics as the locals sang along. This is like the James Paul McCartney special where they all sing <laughs> along. Yeah. And one of the songs he sings is a little tune called Hey Jude. Yes. So you know, I have, to, he, I have to say, yeah. I would, I, I, I would have paid good money to be there. Well, I think that's a bit of an understatement. Uh, I mean, if if we're assuming that the twenty ninth is the day the Cynthia visit, he goes home, he figures out, figures it out, like on paper, gets it all down. And what I like about this story is it's got you know, remnants of the old yesterday story. So the story of yesterday. I don't know if you've heard this, Stephen. Is that uh, Paul? had the song in a dream and it was called Scrambled Eggs. And don't in the, give the Don't give the ending away. <laughs> and uh, oh my save, baby, how I love it. your legs. Save and, it for a future episode. And he spends a period of time after dreaming this song and writing this song, playing it for people because I think he knows that it's a little bit of a cut above. And in the yesterday story, he's playing it to say, is, is this, do you know this song? Is this familiar to you? In the Hey Jude song, he doesn't really have that uncertainty because he's at this stage, Paul McCartney, who writes these kind of things. But, yeah, but there's a couple of episodes of him playing Hey Jude for people before he even gets it to John Lennon. Yes, because I mean, I suppose it's the same way with yesterday. He was playing that just to check that nobody could make the link to the Nat King Cole song that he lifted it from. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Shh, don't mention it. Don't mention sorry, it. Sorry, but yeah, he does. He does seem to play this song to a lot of people, both before he records it and we'll come on after he records it. But um, yeah, so should we talk about your favourite group? Well, just, just before we just before we do that, he does. They do drunkenly drive away from Harold at three in the morning, which I find, you know, quite sixties. You know, the bit of of drunk driving, and I do like Derek Taylor because you know, never a man to use, you know, one word when ten no. will do. Um, you know, he, he talks about how, you know, this Harold was the village we were supposed to have fought the world wars to defend, for which we would be expected to fight the third when told to, but won't. <clears throat> it was a Miniver hamlet on the, ooze, on the ooze, and there were notices telling of the fate next Saturday and a war memorial which made me weep. Thrushes and blackbirds sang and swallows dived into thatches and a little old mower wheezed as we walked. It sounds like the opening of that Genesis song. <laughs> as we walked <laughs> down the only street there was, past the inn which was closed and the church which was open, nodding to a sandy man with a 90 
1930s moustache and khaki shorts as he clipped his hedge and stared at these city people with funny hair and clothes. Good old Derek Taylor. Um, which is very, very sweet and bucolic and nice. Um, but yes, you were getting on to the Baron Knights, who also were privy to a bit of Hey Juding. Is that right? This is your favourite band, I believe. Uh, <laughs> they're not my favourite band. Have you, By the way, have you read Pete Fides's book, Broken Greek? Yes. Yes, um, he, I have read where that. He has a childhood where he is, like all odd childhood obsessions, uh, you know, obsessed with the Baron Knights. And the Baron Knights for people, like I remember them when I was a kid. Um, uh, at that time, they kind of started off in the early 60s as a regular kind of beat group, but they evolved into this, what would you call a parody group? They were like... Yeah. Um, I know you're I'm going to watch your eyebrows raise as I say this. They were like a bad version of Weird Al Yankovic, like a UK version in the 70s, um, uh, where they, they would kind of replace funny words into songs and release them as medleys. And they would constantly be on top of the pops in the 1970s. And they are still together. They're still touring. I do remember. Oh, please, God, no. Uh, I do remember having a couple of their singles lying around the house when I was a kid. Yeah, they were the kind of thing that kids would sort of gravitate to and they'd be always on kind of BBC Saturday evening TV, I think, in the early 80s, yeah. um, you know, ploughing their wares. And they're not your favourite group? <laughs> they're not my favourite. Perhaps I'm just mistaking, confusing you and Pete Pafides. It's an easy mistake to me. <laughs> it, it, it is. Or, um, um, I've, uh, yes, uh, it's a great book, by the way, Broken Greek, well worth reading. Um, but the Baron Knights... Um, you know the Baron Knights is a pun. This didn't dawn on me for years and years and years. No, it's a pun. Is it? Is it? Is it a pun that you've made up, Jason? No, it's a pun. As in the Baron Knights, as in Baron B A R R E N Knights N I G H T Knights. You spend on your own without a, uh, a oh, partner. I see. The Baron Knights. Right. Gosh, okay. is that just me? Is that news to many other people? No, that, that's that's it. Um, sorry, um, I'm just gonna, I'm I'm just going to file that in the file marked "Men Love Avenue." Men Love Avenue, the Baron Knights. Um, you know it makes sense. Um, but the Baron Knights get a blast of this as well. Of Hey Jude, they they do indeed. And I we have to give a shout out to a friend of the show, David Chandler. Thanks, Hi, Dave. Dave. Who did the research for this? Um, I mentioned to him about Paul playing this for people and he said, oh, the Baron Knights, when would that have been? And he came back and had sourced this. So uh, this is Dave's research. Um, so this is a this is from November 2020. Okay. It, uh, this is from Pete Peanut Langford. He's the UK equivalent of Weird Al. Um, the Beatles were in the studio next door and Paul asked if we wanted to hear the song he'd just written. I said, can you hurry up? Please, Paul, we've only got half an hour left. It was Hey Jude. We were the first outside the band to hear it, apart from everybody in the pub, obviously. <laughs> yes. Um, it didn't, yeah. He says it didn't blow us away, but then it didn't have any strings or anything. It was just Paul on an acoustic guitar. I introduced him to our session player, a guy called Reg Dwight. So this is we the all day know who Reg Dwight is. This is the day that Paul met Reg. Reg, Elton John, folks. Um, as in Reg Strikes Back, the best Elton John album. Um, the Baron Knights had <laughs> toured with the Fab Four twice um, and uh, Brian Epstein saw them in uh, 1963. And so, yeah, they had been, they'd come up through the ranks of uh, Hamburg and supports and package tours and all the rest. And they were pretty big, even though they were a novelty act. They were selling out theatres all across the UK at that time. They were 
they were a serious concern. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, they said, the Beatles were so lovely and friendly. Paul was like your next door neighbor. George was very quiet. I think he's seen a hard day's night. He was just the kindest guy. Ringo <laughs> they all was lived the comedian. in a house, as I remember. They went in four different doors, but it was one big building on the inside. Ringo was the comedian, <laughs> always funny. And John was sarcastic, but in the nicest way. He was always playing pranks. There you go. Um, oh, praying pranks, yes. On tour, we had to finish our set in a blackout. We'd whip off our guitars and run off the stage and the lights would come back on to reveal the Beatles. Only John grabbed Butch Baker, our lead guitarist, so when the lights came on, he was still holding him and laughing his head off. What larks. What Hilarious. larks. Imagine. Hilarious. They didn't even TikTok it as a prank. Um, there's another band that apparently heard a rendition of Hey Jude, but this doesn't really fit the timeline particularly, which is the Bonzo Dog, open brackets, Duda, close brackets band. Yes. Is the box set out yet? The box set is not out yet, but we, we are told, it, I, there, there was, I think, a little line in Mojo that says hey, one of these kind of 50 CD Bonzo box sets is on the way. It's coming. It's coming. It is. Uh, yeah, so uh, this this... Again, we know that Paul produced I'm the Urban Spaceman, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Neil in a song for the Bonzos. Uh, Paul acted as the producer. He was credited as Apollo C. Vermouth. So unless you're Gus Dudgeon, who says that he produced uh, the single. But um, essentially, Paul arrives at Chapel Studios where the Bonzos are recording, immediately sits down at the piano and plays Hey Jude, which he'd just finished writing. Now, the, the biography of the Bonzos places this in March 1968, but that cannot obviously be Doesn't right. So this, sense, this yeah. must, be, must be into June or July uh, of 1968. The Bonzos played their own instruments on the record that we were making, but McCartney allowed them to keep his ukulele track on the final version of the single. So he's literally just in there larking around and playing on the, on the yep. single. The timeline for that's a little bit uncertain, but um, Paul is a fan of the Bonzas and obviously they had already been in Magical Mystery Tour. Um, there's also Ron Griffith of the Ivy slash Badfinger says that on one of their first days in the studio, McCartney wanders in and gives them a full concert rendition of Hey Jude. He's not shy, is he? He's not shy. He's not shy. Uh, yeah, he uh, he's playing this to everybody. Um, yeah. You know, to be fair, if I had written Hey Jude, I would be playing it to everybody as well. I, I I think it's absolutely uh, I, I think it's absolutely understandable, and you know there's an awful lot of songs circulating at this time. You know, as we've said before, they'd you know been in India. They've done the Isher demos right at the end of May. You know, they are swimming in songs, and yet this song appears, and you know he's not performing these other songs for people. He's performing this song as soon as it's yeah. hot off the skillet. Um, yeah, and it's you know obviously Paul's talent is <laughs> huge uh, for writing songs, but he also has a talent for realizing this is a different song. This is yes, this is a different category of song. Mm. Um, but the one person he needs to play it for is John, and so there's a, there's a, an accepted story, or is there not that? John and Yoko move in with Paul. Is this when that happens, or this is think? this this is when 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 this happens? So um, immediately after the split, uh, Paul lets John and Yoko stay uh, in in Cavendish Avenue, mm. and there, this is this is the period when there's this slightly unsavory 
story about John finding a note that uh, Paul had had written um, yeah. and presumably left to, to, to be found. And this is this is repeated in a couple of places. So Pete Doggett re- repeats the story in his book, You Never Give Me Your Money, but it seems to originate with Francie Schwartz, who was Paul's girlfriend at the time. Yes. She... And- she she wrote a terrible i mean it's a shockingly awful book yeah. and she seems to be the only source for this story and she says that i think when paul was out john finds a note and the note supposedly says you and your jap tart think you're hot shit do mm. you think john not happy with this well it's it's a bit of an you know, if if you take the story as being true, it's not really very nice. And I could understand why you mightn't find it particularly uh, funny. Um, but is it true or is it not? We don't know. As you well, say, Francie Schwartz is, you know, for those who don't know her, she is briefly Paul's squeeze, another euphemism, uh, for a, a period of time in mid-1968. And it seems to be that she is the... Um, the woman who essentially Jane Asher breaks everything off when yeah. Francie Schwartz is in the picture, but she is kind of gone by the end of 68. Um, but she is around with Paul for a short period of time. Yes. So Jane Asher is Paul's fiance. Mm. Francie Schwartz is Paul's English girlfriend. Linda Eastman <laughs> is Paul's American girlfriend. Just okay. so that we, uh, but yeah, so she purports to be writing this as an eyewitness account, but that, that doesn't sound like an English phrase. That sounds like an American phrase. The way that's that's written. Yeah, yeah. The phrase "hot shit" doesn't sound like a like a yeah. like a UK based idiom for nineteen sixty eight. We could be wrong. We could be wrong. But but most tellingly, John has never mentioned this. Yoko has never mentioned it. Not not even in John's nineteen seventy Rolling Stone interview when he's yeah. saying you know the other Beatles were casting dirty looks at Yoko, et cetera, et cetera. You would think that if this actually happened, yeah, that's the place where it would be mentioned. And yeah. it isn't mentioned. And I think I'm pretty confident that it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, John uh, doesn't forget a grudge or a slight. And yeah, John and Yoko have never mentioned it. And it's worth saying, I know you're you saying that uh, Francie Schwartz is his um, British girlfriend, but she's based in Britain, but she is American. She's herself. American. She's yeah, American. It's worth, yeah. it's worth pointing that out. Um, so we think it's towards the end of July, uh, maybe the 26th of July, when McCartney presents Hey Jude to Lennon. And, uh, you know, Lennon is actually living with Yoko at this point in time in the Montague Square flat where he takes his picture yes. in the nip with a dog. Um, so he's, uh, he's, they're visiting him in Cavendish, although John mentions that there might be a, a demo tape or he might have been given a demo of it. Yeah, Paul talks about playing it in person, you know, on the piano, but, but John uh, mentions the demo tape in 19, 1968, so it's a fairly contemporary reference. He said, when Paul, Paul first sang Hey Jude to me, or played me the little tape he's made of it. So John seems to be a little confused. He talks about playing it, but then he does mention a tape. I'm not aware that a tape has ever surfaced. No. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's one way or the other. Either way, the, the tr- bottom line is that Paul is presenting the song to John. And we might as well just tell the story. 
The story. Uh, so, so Paul says, in many years from now, I finished it all up in Cavendish and I was in the music room upstairs when John and Yoko came to visit and they were right behind me over my right shoulder, standing up, listening to it as I played it to them. And when I got to the line, the movement you need is on your shoulder, I looked over my shoulder and I said, I'll change that. It's a bit crummy. I was just blocking it out. And John said, you won't, you know, that's the best line in it. That's collaboration. When someone's that firm about a line that you're going to junk and he said, no, keep it in. So, of course, you love that line twice as much because it's a little stray, it's a little mutt that you were about to put down and it was reprieved and so it's more beautiful than ever. I love those words now. Um, what age were you, Stephen, when you first heard Paul tell that story? I think I was eight or nine years old. <laughs> I, I vividly remember hearing that story for the first time in when, um, when Flowers in the Dirt came out. There was an eight-part Paul McCartney Radio 1 documentary and I was just kind of getting into solo Paul at that time and it was full of contemporaneous interviews and I taped them all it was on BBC Radio 1 I think it was called McCartney on McCartney and he told that story when, when we got to Hey Jude and I'd never heard the story before and I thought that's an amazing story and if you don't know that story that is an amazing story it is an amazing story it's a story it's... he has told many times but you know it is a good story you can't deny it it is a good story but it, it has now become a sort of greatest hit you know it's a story that must be told <laughs> Yes. Um, but what is very striking is um, for all their ups and downs and ins and outs, John loves this song. Like, yes. he has never said a bad word about this song. And it's possibly his favourite Paul song. Um, you know, in 1972, John says, that's his best song. And in 1980, he says it's one of his masterpieces. And although John wanted Revolution to be the next Beatles single, he's doesn't deny the calibre of Hey Jude. No, he says we put out Hey Jude, which was worthy. And again, that's John speaking in 1970. So in, in the context of, well, you know, they wouldn't work on my songs and I was always getting a raw deal. But he, he he's admitting at that point that sort of the height of the animosity between the two of them, that song was a worthy A-side. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've all grown to know and love about Hey Jude is that it's a song of solace, really, and, you know, reassurance. And John is one of the first people, I know Paul has played it to all these other groups, but John is one of the first people to hear it without any context and without knowing what it is. And he's somebody who is, to put it mildly, going through some stuff. So yeah. it's not understandable that, you know, Lennon states that he's always heard, you know, this is him in 1980, he says, I've always heard it as a song to me. And he felt that it was like on some level McCartney giving a blessing to him and, and, and Yoko. And, and I, think, I think that's the magic of the song is that uh, what, what I've noticed about Hey Jude is if you're sad, it can cheer you up. If you're sad, it can make you more sad. If you're yeah. happy, it can also make you happier. It, 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 is, it is a mood um, altering substance, that song. I think you're right. I think you're right. And the 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 very isolated vocal that starts, you know, just yeah, uh, you know, it starts with with Paul's voice, and then it ends in this great kind of massed communal sing along. So it's a it is a it's a journey. You know, it it, it does take you on a on a journey. And uh, the lyrics are very non specific. Yes. Uh, which, again, is a, is a bit of a Paul speciality to make, yeah. uh, uh, as we've said before, the unconventional sound conventional, to make 
music and art that uh, only makes sense when the audience is added to it and that the audience can see themselves reflected in it. Uh, Author Mark Hertzgaard says, many of the song's lyrics do seem directed more at a grown man on the verge of a powerful new love, especially the lines, you have found her, now go and get her, and you're waiting for someone to perform with. And that is an interesting twist in the song, because as we've said before, the the, the creation myth of the song is that it's a song to comfort Julian Lennon. Mm. But then there is those lines that say, you know, you found her, go and get her, go and perform with her, you know. So although it is a song of solace, it does sort of sound as a song of advice, you know, go off and love that person, be with that person is another kind of theme of the song. Yeah. Um, If we look at the original lyrics, there's a slight change there. So uh, the lyric sheet is in the 50th anniversary Super Deluxe edition of the White Album. And uh, two interesting things. One, it was written on the back of a sheet of paper that had the finished lyrics to While My Guitar Gently Weeps. So just some old scrap of useless paper that <laughs> Paul... Paul uh, you using this, George? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. The, the lyrics are essentially the same as, as appear on the finished recording, except for the line where he sings, she has found you instead of you have found her. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I think, is an interesting turn around yes uh, and there's also this notion that it's a as we said there's change in all the relationships here so Lennon has also speculated that McCartney you know realizes that his relationship with Jane Asher is failing he's writing a message to himself you know and arguably you know hey Jude this kind of universality of it the song might be saying you know if you found yourself your your new personal self go off with your personal self into the future you could even draw that from it yeah, um, and I do think we need to bear in mind, as you say, that uh, he is breaking up a long-term relationship with Jane Asher and is in a sort of transitional period. He's he, Francis Schwartz is on the scene, but he has begun his relationship with, with the, the woman he's going to marry and, and, and basically spend the rest of her life together um, with Linda. So he's writing to John, he's writing to Julian, he's writing to himself, and I think all of those interpretations are possible. And uh, it is interesting to look at um, Paul and Jane's split and put it up against John and Cynthia's split, which is a, John and Cynthia, as we've been talking about, is a big, controversial, tabloid-based yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a disaster, really, <laughs> you know, from a public relations point of view. Whereas Paul and Jane's split, Jane goes on to, what is it, Simon D's talk show D-Time and says, you know, well, we're not together anymore and maybe, you know, we'll meet up in our 70s as childhood sweethearts and rekindle our romance. It's all very neat, very organised, very Paul, really. It's very Paul and it's very Jane. Yes, and Jane Asher is magnificent. She has never given any interviews, never spoken since uh, that Simon D interview about any of her time with Paul McCartney. I think Mark Lewison has said she is the one person she would he would love to interview. Um, but she has been uh, pretty pretty uh, tight lipped about all of those years. I mean, I I I think even in the midst of that breakup and. The, the shock that that must have been to her. There is a kind of dignity to the way Jane handled the whole thing and uh, continues to handle it. And uh, yeah, it's a very striking contrast with the you know wall-to-wall press coverage of uh, John Split from Cynthia. Um, so the time comes then for the Beatles to actually 
get the song made. Um, the last thing they do towards the end of July, on the 28th of July, is the Mad Day Out. They have this very famous day where they go all around London taking lots of photographs. So if you're trying to place where Hey Jude lands in the middle of this, um, on the 28th of July, uh, Don McCullen takes the Beatles all around um, London with some other photographers and they take these fantastic series of pictures of the Beatles that we all know and love. And that happens on the 28th of July. And we could probably even do a, a travelogue episode on that in the future, I think. I, I think if we do that this this July, there are seven locations and we can just broadcast live from each location. That would be good. <laughs> would that be a good podcast? Well, we're standing here and then the next part, we're standing yeah. here now. Um, and so that brings us to the best date, the 29th of July, 1968, where the Beatles decide to start rehearsing the song. But that is where we're going to leave it, everybody. <laughs> it's a long road to actually get to Hey Jude. Um, they have but they haven't recorded they haven't recorded a note yet, and we're they, three episodes in. They haven't recorded a note yet, so maybe by the time we get to episode seven, Hey Jude will be in a shop. Who knows? Um, but that is the road. The next part of the road of the song being created um, and being brought to John and being brought to the Beatles. And next, it needs to be brought to the world but that is for part three on our look at the song Hey Jude there's a lot in it isn't there Stephen? There's quite a lot in it I thought we weren't going to get an episode out of this (laughs) There's quite a lot in it it's like the Snickers of podcasts episodes uh, the Hey Jude episode Um, and we're not sponsored but we remain available to discuss all of this in all the usual places we're on Twitter at BeatlesPod the Nothing's Real Facebook group that Stephen uh, manages Uh, join 6,000 other people to chat about the Beatles the website where we keep it all together nothingisrealpod.com and you can go onto the website and look at our ACAST plus tier a whole other weird and wonderful world of Nothing Is Real episodes you can have myself and Stephen and Luke Haynes talking about uh, Dark Horse, you know, great the great George great, Harrison album. Great album. Great album. Um, and there's also parallel episodes to go with these Hey Jude episodes, particularly the history of John and Cynthia Lennon. Uh, but for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.